Cesar Aguilar. Welcome to the 525 Records podcast. How are you doing today? Great, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're in Austin, Texas. Yeah. I am up in Portland, Oregon. We're doing this long distance. And uh, I thought a good thing to launch into is your thoughts being a longtime Austinite on the Los Angeles exodus of famous people swarming into Austin, Texas. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> That's funny, man. Uh, you know, my thoughts on this is that, you know, it, it was already kind of this urban myth in Austin that all these Californians were moving here. And uh, although I think that there has been quite a few, um, it seems like a lot of people, Texas is so huge, man, that people from, from Dallas and Houston move here quite often. I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know if I have really any thoughts on it outside of sometimes I welcome it because I'm like, well, maybe it'll bring in some new blood and some new ideas. It's one thing to move from Dallas to Austin, you're, you're, you know, or coming from San Antonio. It's a Texas to Texas move. And as much as it varies within city to city, it's still in Texas, you know. But when you have all these L.A. hipsters moving to Austin just in record droves, I'm just wondering if there's a visual. Have you noticed a visual change on the streets of Austin, you know, in the last month or two? You know, that's a, you know, that's a good question, man. I, I actually have noticed that that's what I was about to say. So Austin continues to try to be this, um, you know, this college town, but you know, it's got like, you, you know, international national acclaim. And there's a lot of people that want to move here because we make these damn headlines about great place to live, you know, reasonably affordable, and uh, like I was saying, you know, even though I welcome, you know, innovation and cool ideas, um, you know, we don't really have the infrastructure for it, man. So it look makes up for like a lot of congestion. Um, we got a pretty, you know, not to get, you know, dreary here, but, you know, a, a pretty, you know, significant homeless problem that's happening. So I think, man, like, you know, this is like a lot of major cities in the country right now you know i've heard the wash is in downtown i've only been to austin a couple of times but i think right around sixth street there's this wash right and that's like a, it's the main area of homeless in austin yeah 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 exactly exactly and then you know living in a you know in a pandemic has just created all kinds of just weirdness man let's just leave it at that <laughs> it's got like there's like this you know weirdness going on in the city and yeah, I got a lot of people camping out and I, you know, it's just, it's like living in this, it's kind of, it gives you this mixed response, right? Because I love, you know, Austin's my home. I've been here for several years. Right. And, uh, I love the city. Um, and so, you know, I want to be a part of something, you know, part of doing something about it, but you kind of feel a little bit helpless because you can't, you know, when did you move to Austin? I got here in 95. I, I came to school here. I came to the university of Texas. Um, and pretty much I've been here for on and off, um, you know, I guess it would be 25 years now. There was a little stint where I, you know, moved back home for about three years, um, which is, you know, down in, down on the border, Rio Grande Valley, but, uh, pretty much, you know, 20 plus, 20 plus years here in Austin. What did, and you went to UT, what were you, uh, majoring in? I, I came here to study, I got a degree in, um, English. <laughs> uh, you know, avid reader. Uh, I've always kind of been fascinated with writing. Um, I had some good 
teachers back in in high school that they saw in me things that I you know didn't see in myself, and they were like, "You you know you 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 have a knack for at least communicating things that are um, you know kind of from the heart." Is the kind of stuff that they would tell me, and you know I, I you know I, I I that's what I've done for a long time, man. It's just I've always been a journaler or somebody that has written a lot of stuff for many, many years, man. I've, I've been toting a bunch of old journals around for, you know, two decades. It's, it's all making sense to me now. Oh, your incredible lyric writing, uh, Cesar Aguilar frontman for the Austin, Texas band haunted amps. Um, they've been, uh, broken up for a while now, but one of the most important records of the last 10 years, I would say in terms of underground, you know, awesome indie rock. Um, you 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 call it ghost rock on Twitter. I don't know. How do you feel about that moniker now? Is it still pretty accurate? You know, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I was I was toying around with a few different ideas of you know what I felt about the music. I was I was trying to make a, a point that um, the music was very involved in in. Uh, being in the present moment that's that's what i was trying to communicate and the ghost rock stuff you know it was just this idea of um being connected to like two worlds at once another uh, like a uh, an other world like a spirit world and then being here at the same time and uh, toggling those two worlds haunted amps is such a great band name haunted amps i'm just wondering who came up with that is that of your creation or was it a group thing so there was this one time when i was um listening to an old john frusciante from the red hot chili peppers i like some i like i not I, I like i love a lot of his solo stuff and there was some old videos when he was really down on his luck man like really strung out on drugs and he talked about um hearing ghosts like you know, coming out of his amplifiers. And, uh, I could relate to that. You know what I mean? I, I was like, yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, uh, idea. And, um, so I had this, this, uh, band that I'd started and I wanted, I always knew I wanted to base the band off of that idea. And the first band, me trying to come up with this idea of, you know, basically ghosts, uh, emanating from from the sound from the speakers. Um, the first iteration I had was this this duo I had here in Austin called Spectre in the Cab, and it was this you know like ghost coming out of your guitar cabinet. <laughs> and that was the precursor to the uh, uh, Haunted Amps project, which would develop out of Spectre in the Cab. That's right. That's right. So basically, yeah, um, you know, I was like, okay. This makes sense to me, the whole specter in the cab. It's like, but a lot of people, it might not make sense to you. They might think it's like a literal somebody, like a ghost getting out of a taxi. And so I wanted to, to communicate the idea more clearly. And then one day it just hit me um, that, you know, Haunted Amps did that. And I liked the way it rolled off the tongue. And I felt like it really communicated um, the style of music that I wanted to make. I've, I've never seen a name match 
a record or a band, you know, better. And I think I know those John Frusconti videos you're talking about. It was in the depths of his heroin addiction. He was selling all his guitars. He's living in some crap, crappy studio apartment in some part of L.A. And uh, he just looks horrible. Those, and, are, uh, those are the ones, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those videos, um, man, I mean, this is the thing about the 90s. You do things on film back then. Oh, nobody's ever going to see it. You know, they'll languish away on some VHS tape. And then here we are. I mean, the most obscure, craziest home recordings are now resurfacing to live forever online. And this is the age that we are in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually grateful. I'm grateful for that because I'm sure there's some other people that aren't so grateful that have maybe, you know, made some miscalculations about getting stuff recorded that they would otherwise not want, uh, you know, circulating out there. But you're seeing those videos. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, it's, you know, it. Uh, I can relate, you know, having gone through my own struggles with, uh, you know, going into darkness. So, you know, at that time, that's kind of what I gravitated to, man. I, you know, I just, you know, seeing him like beat down like that, um, you know, I could relate to that. And uh, that idea just stuck with me. Well, yeah, you know, you're not alone. If you do a quick Google search for haunted amps, you get a ton of these stories of literally haunted amps, you know, oh, the amp did this and uh, it acted weird. And I, there's all these, you know, ghost stories of, of amps. And, you know, you think, amps and guitars they're so deeply personal you know somebody spends their whole life with a guitar and then they die or it gets it moves on to a new owner and it like retains that essence of the former owner you know to a large degree it seems to me i don't know call me crazy but no uh, no no i think that you know and, and that's awesome that you, you you know you did that search because you know that that that's what i think is fascinating about about the the name right is that you know if you go down that rabbit hole and there's not a lot of stuff out there but it's just a it's just a cool idea that um you know people will look this kind of stuff up online or they'll record some stuff where they're like oh dude my aunt did this so what i'm getting what i'm trying to communicate here i guess is that this idea of you know with sound you can get you can go out there you can go to like a frontier that nobody has ever been to musically or sonically speaking and really tap into something, man. And you don't know how you got there and it could be of this world, but you could also, someone could say, man, like he tapped into something and it really feels like it is otherworldly. And that's, that's really what I'm trying to like communicate about this whole idea with, uh, you know, the, the the name Haunted Amps, I guess. Sound, light, vibration, matter, density. It's all kind of the same thing, you know. I mean, sound requires air to travel. You can't have sound without air. And uh, it just it fits all together in a beautiful uh, little puzzle. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you say that. I, I, I think so. I think that um, music is... Uh, it's just been a big part of my life, man. It's real sacred to me. And I think that we don't fully know everything that's going on with it. And, um, but we know that it, you know, it can make us feel really good. Um, you know what I mean? It can transport us to a memory at the, you know, like a piano, a key on a piano strikes and you can be transported to a memory based off of song. So there's just a lot of mystical stuff going on is, is the way I like to believe. 
And I mean, for thousands of years, the Catholic Church banned a series of notes. And it's the, basically, if you ever hear the Black Sabbath, their very first song, it's, you know, Black Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. That particular uh, interval was banned by the church because they deemed it to be evil. You know, so you can never play those three notes in that interval. That sounds like an interval that I want to play. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, who's to judge? Yeah. My guest today on the podcast, you're listening to Cesar Aguilar, frontman for a band out of Austin, Texas called Haunted Amps. We should listen to a little more of the record in chronological order. just geek out a little bit on that song because th that slide track kills me it's amazing but i'm just I'm, i've never really found out what kind of guitar were you playing on that you know um so we we, we we recorded this at a studio in austin and there was some guitars available um to us there to my knowledge the record was recorded on either a stratocaster or a fender mustang that was in the studio. That's what I chose for, 
for the record. And I think it was the um, studio owner slash engineer. I think I might have been playing through a strat that might have been his. Um, it's hard to talk about how awesome this record is if you've never heard it. So I think we should uh, listen to one more song. This is, uh, and it's something that we should mention is that this album was concocted in a very specific order. You had a very strong intention as to how the tracks were laid out. And as, as far as I've heard, rumor on the street is you had it pretty much completed before you even had the band together. Um, is that even close to accurate? But yeah, yeah, but yeah, both are true. Both are true in that. Yeah, I mean, it, it to me, um, I I still believe wholeheartedly this was a very conceptual record, just because, you know, of, of the experience I went through writing it. And um, yeah, as far as I as far as I recall, because I was on the verge, not on the verge, I was going through another disintegration my first disintegration of a brand, of a band. And that was, you know, Spectre and the cab had disintegrated, but basically I had to, you know, put a band together and, and, and find a drummer and, you know, but the record, yeah, definitely. Um, Much like a, a Kubrick movie where he's got it all on his head before he even pulls a camera out, you know, the shot selection, the order, it means everything, you know, it's very, a lot of bands don't do that. It's kind of, they just wing it. They go in, eh, we'll put the song here. Eh, maybe change them up a little bit, but uh, not on this record. This is very, <laughs> no, no, for sure. <laughs> no, not if, uh, I'm hoping this is accurate. Also, it was at shine studios. Does that sound right? Yeah. The yeah. Great. Justin Douglas was the uh, engineer on this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Justin Douglas, he's a local musician slash engineer. And uh, I think his studio is called something else now. The name escapes me, but it was Shine then, and it's called um, King Electric Studios now or something to that effect. So it was Shine now, King Electric Studios. The great Justin Douglas engineered this Haunted Amps record from 2010. Cesar Aguilar is the front man for the Haunted Amps. He's the guest on the podcast today. This song is my absolute favorite on the record, and it's called Hurricane.
Absolutely brilliant guitar work. That intro, man, I got to know all about that intro, how it came about, who, how many guitar tracks are on there. And um, you're the only guitar player on this record. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that intro consists of feedback, some crazy, like really high octave slide stuff where you get those crazy notes um, in addition to just kind of a regular guitar track. And then, of course, those spring reverb explosions and uh, you know it's one of those things that you could probably do it all on one track but uh, what is your re- i know it's been a, f- a few years but what is your recollection of that intro so basically what, what the the concept there was this idea of this uh impending doom you know kind of cert- you know the way hurricanes do right like they you hear that you know uh, hurricane is forming in the middle of the atlantic gaining force right it's um you know it's it's picking up with you know on wind speed and you know it's just this um ominous kind of situation and what i had communicated and i heard this in my head you know and i I had communicated to certainly the guys when we were you know practicing this song and and forming the idea that you know it had to feel that way it had to feel like this this catastrophic event that was about to make landfall um we use there was a few overdubs a few overdubs and one thing that you know there was like um like a space echo pedal 
like a, it, it was not like the old like tape delay space echo it was like some new thing that Roland had you know recently put out or something you know the first thing was to create that that undulating sound and and after going through a few different effects ideas with with Justin I was like okay this this sounds like it because we were able to basically I was able if I recall correctly the way this pedal worked I was able to rem- remember all of this was recorded live right like this was not like after after effects um production and so um with the way this particular pedal worked I was able to depress the pedal and every time I would you know let a chord ring out I could press that pedal and extend the delay and it would give me these varying speeds of, of, of undulation. And so that was doing it for me in terms of like, like this sounds like something that is festering, something that is brewing. And then, uh, he, he had some like this, like this, like knockoff, uh, pedal of some sort that was just like this little no name boutique pedal that it had like it literally was nondescript and when we press down on when i press down on that it's what gives you those really high end frequencies and which to me at the time that felt like you know like lightning striking you know and thunder uh booming and these are all things that i wanted to to hear and then the third overdub was me just like really taking the pick to to the strings and just like um feverishly strumming like at a at an alarming rate that's where you hear all that like high end there towards the end when beth has um beth seth has that that awesome bass line but all that like just really high frequency stuff was me just kind of feverishly uh strumming away at the guitar and and and, and that to me like was really sounding like um you know, right before the hurricane makes landfall. And this is all from a three-piece rock band, which is recording live in the studio, a minimal amount of overdubs. Seth Gibson is the bass player. Uh, Justin Swite, is that the right way to say his name? I was butchered. It, it, it looks like Sweat, but, you know, he pronounced it, I, I believe he pronounced it Swite, and so we pronounced it Swite as well. Justin Swite, fantastic on the drums. Seth Gibson, absolutely above and beyond his pay grade on the bass guitar. And uh, it all came together into this magical moment onto two-inch tape in Austin, Texas in the summer of 2010. That intro, it's rare that a song just makes your jaw kind of hang open. And then, you know, you're just like, it, what the hell? How is this even possible? You know, it's not your average song. Just know what I know about this record. It, you guys didn't spend, you know, two months in the studio trying to get perfect guitar takes and overdubs this was a quick in quick out mm-hmm. i mean how long did the whole recording take well going back to what what you referenced first and then i'll answer the second part of um what you just said here or what you just asked like i i, I do believe that um you know there was a lot of magical stuff that happened man like that you know listening to hurricane even as you played it now it's like that we were able to get those sounds um I think it's a testament to the people that were in the room, meaning that there was just this like confluence of, you know, people that had something to offer uh, musically and all that energy was focused and, you know, that's what came out, 
that's really what's a part of us, you know, myself, uh, Seth and, and Swite. And so it just, we just kind of gelled together and, and, and that's the end product. And there's like, you know, it's like, you know, people's innermost being expressed. And, and I think it really, um, I think it was, you know, captured well, um, or, or at least expressed well is what I'm trying to say. We, we didn't have a lot of money as a group. You know, I had, I had recorded a Spectre in the Cab record with Justin Pryor. That's how I knew him because he had helped us record a little, little five song EP uh, called Five Purple Songs. And, um, and so I was like, well, what he recorded sounded really good to me on Spectre. And, you know, I had loyalty to him because he was, you know, he was a good friend and, and, and heard us out. And so I was like, let's go back to the guy that was able to help me record um, our first album. To answer your question, it was a, we, we knocked this out. And we knocked out, what is it, eight songs on the record? Eight songs in two days? One song, one day we went in and, and tracked all the instrumentation and the next day we tracked all the um all the vocals and any other overdubs that came to me uh sound wise that i felt needed to go in this in the song to to fill them out two days to track one of the most incredible records and you know the guitar work is so incredible and so brilliant when when seth told me seth gibson the bass player that you had were a new guitar player that you had just learned guitar prior to this record that blew me away even more i mean what do you think was it a year or maybe two you'd been playing guitar when you guys went in to do this record well well to be fair um i had ne i've always wanted to play guitar right and but i was just kind of i never took lessons i was always kind of lazy about it i'd maybe learned some major chords like from 2000 to 2005 and i was already starting to strum and and you know, write you know, real basic, uh, real basic songs, uh, three chord songs and stuff like that. And then right around 2005, um, there was like some major events that happened in my life. I had a friend that 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 passed away. Well, it was kind of a weird story, but he he essentially had a heart attack uh, in my arms and was resuscitated and, and got to live a few years after that he had had a, like a major stroke and a heart attack and um and he had a heart transplant and got to live a few years he's now passed but that was a, a catalyzing event for me in that you know i started to see um you know how impermanent we are <laughs> and what was i going to do with my time here you know, I've always been drawn to the arts and, and I didn't want to squander any more time not trying to do something with the arts. And I've always been an avid music lover and I wanted to do something musically. And so I would say, um, you know, 2000, you know, probably from about 2000, seven on is when I just started buckling down and, 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 and breaking my hand down and making it do what I needed it to do, <laughs> hold down chords and, and, and learn one lead pattern and, uh, and just keep on repeating that over and over and over till I could, um, uh, you know, come across as somebody that knew their way around, somewhat knew their way around a guitar. 
Oh, dude, you hit it right on the head there because the rest of us pick it up as teenagers and we I, we idolize rock bands and we practice solos and try to mimic and mirror. But your style, the why it resonates as so incredible and true is that it's so out of the box. It's so beautifully abstract that you couldn't try to play that if you wanted to, you know? And so now you have this, you know, you've transcended guitar. You've become this original thing you know that nobody else can do nobody else can really even mimic and this is why you know these are always the best records are always the ones done in the shortest amount of time and you know you have when you first start playing guitar and writing music most people i think would say that you have this sort of creative fire that uh, you know when you're new to the instrument everything you know comes out all at once and it just all you know it's it's amazing it's always amazing to me when you have guitar players that uh, think uh, think outside of the instrument and the instrument is just a pure vehicle it's not it's not even really relevant to what's happening it's just sort of happens to be the vehicle that the music is coming through yeah well i appreciate you saying that um i think that has you know that has been my approach you know i can be stubbornly um like an individualist like i don't want to I don't want to take lessons, you know what I mean? I don't want, I didn't want to learn other people's songs and, and people could construe that as like, dude, you're just being lazy, you know what I mean? Like everybody learns other people's songs and, and you know, and, and, I, and I still to this day don't know a lot of covers, you know, because I didn't want, I didn't want somebody else's style to taint the way uh, that I wrote. And people might not believe that, but I, you know, that was a deliberate choice. You know, I do sometimes think that that could have hurt me because I could have probably learned, um, you know, structures that I could have used for my own songwriting. But yeah, it is what it is. You know what I mean? It's just that was my approach to it. And uh, I, I mean, I think there's a little bit of uh, credence to what you say in that, you know, the way I approach the guitar, like I'll look at a chord chart. And I'll just kind of um, pick different chords that are that are illustrated, and I listen for the ones that um, that that strike me emotionally as wow, this is really dissonant and bizarre, a bizarre chord, and it's got a weird, like a real weird shape for my hand, and that's what I'm drawn to. Is like, does it have a weird shape? <laughs> And does it do something to me emotionally? Because if it has a weird shape, it's going to make, it's going to train my hand to do something that uh, my hand's not used to doing. I find that those things help me, you know, gain more um, facility, if you will, like with playing. What, uh, what was your friend's name that he had a heart attack in? Yeah. His name was uh, Chasen, Chasen Llewellyn. And, uh, you know, he was a fellow, uh, he was a fellow uh, partier. We partied together. We worked together. And we were both like walking around, you know, romanticizing uh, like Bukowski and just being drunks, drunks and drunks and, and, and poets. He was a poet. Bukowski, one of my all time favorites. And so you guys are just walking around Austin. No, 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 it wasn't, no, it wasn't even like that. So basically one day me and my gal, uh, we're, we're driving around the city. We're fixing to go do something, you know, enjoy our Sunday. And, uh, I get a phone call. I get a phone call 
from Chasen. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I pick up my phone, I see he's calling and I could have easily have declined to answer the phone. You know what I mean? Cause I'm with my girl and we're like about to do something. And, and if I recall correctly, she kind of gave me the eyes of like, Hey, you know, we're, we're in the middle of something, you know, like no hanging out with Chasen today. Oh, I know that look. Yeah. You know? And, um, but I was like, man, I got to answer this. And I answered it. And on the other line, I mean, I just hear a, a person that is, um, what's the word I'm looking for here in distress. And he's like, man, Cesar, you got to, something's happening. You got to come, man. You got to come to my house. Help me, you know? And I communicated that to my girl. We did a U-turn, got back on the highway, got back on I-35, which is the main highway here in the city. And I was all the way in South Austin. He's, he lives in like North Central Austin. And I just hightailed it. And before I even got there, he called me a second time and was like, <clears throat> he's like, hey, man, where are you? You know, you know, I could sense the situation was urgent. He's like, where are you, man? I need you. To, I need you here. Anyway, long story short, we finally arrived. Um, we walked up the stairs. He's sitting outside of his apartment. He's on the second floor. He's sitting out on the landing. And, uh, you know, I can see that his skin is turning purple as I walk towards him. And then the minute I got there, he, you know, literally collapsed. And I had to like squat down to ensure that he didn't bang his head on the concrete because he just turned, you know, like a sack of potatoes. And, uh, you know, um, we were frantic, uh, you know, because he went into cardiac arrest, essentially. And we called an ambulance. They took like what seemed like an eternity to arrive and then they showed up and began the whole CPR CPR process and you know um took probably what seemed like I think it was anywhere from seven to 15 minutes to get a heartbeat again so he had essentially died and uh they brought him back and how old was he at the time let's see I would have been Roughly around 27. He was maybe four years older than me. So he was like 31, 32. Just crazy young to be having a heart attack. Yeah, dude. Definitely. Definitely, man. That's that, that's what was the stunner. And dude, you know, that was a very traumatic experience, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's if, you, if that doesn't change you, maybe you have bigger problems. I mean, that would change anybody. I mean, your best friend has a heart attack right in front of you. I mean, dude, that's, I mean, uh, well, dude, it would certainly inform, um, what was, what was going to happen moving forward from an artistic standpoint. You know, that's when I started to feel like I was coming in real close contact with this question of, um, why are we here? What are we going to do with it? And, you know, mortality, like death waits for nobody. So he survives the heart attack. He's on a short list for a transplant. He winds up getting a transplant at some point and living for a few more years. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what happened. He, um, you know, he, he was reluctant to do it. He didn't want to do it. He, you know, finally heard his mother out and heard a lot of people that loved him out and, uh, you know, went through it. And I think he got to live another solid, um, three years, you know, he did, you know, in retrospect, he, 
certainly complained about it because of, you know, it's not like you just go back to a normal life. You know, you're heavily uh, medicated and, uh, you know, under a watchful eye. And so your life becomes, you know, a lot of doctors, a lot of doctor's visits, a lot of medicine. And, uh, you know, I know that he was appreciative, but I, I also sense that, you know, he, it, you know, it was, it was, it was a burden as well, you know? I mean, I can't imagine being in that position, but I mean, did he ever share with you his near-death experience? Oh yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. In fact, um, not only that, but, you know, I remember getting a phone call from him one day and, uh, him telling me that he had this crazy dream where basically he remembered, um, I don't remember the details, but um, he had this crazy dream. And anyway, the, the conversation basically went, he's like, man, says, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Um, I want to live. And, you know, I remember him being tearful. And, you know, man, that set me on a path of some very, very heavy anxiety. Because, you know, I wasn't the poster child for, for, for great mental or physical health. You know, I, you know, I had my own background and, 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 uh, you know, partying and, you know, Austin is, Austin is very conducive to that, to, you know, a a lifestyle of, of drinking and just kind of living, living for the day kind of stuff. And so I certainly had my own struggles with that. And, uh, so I, you know, there was like a reckoning that was happening of like, man, you know, I, I definitely got that, man, if I continue down this path, who's to say that that isn't my own fate? And, uh, you know, I had to, I had to really look at that. I had to really look at that and do a lot of, a lot of work around that. Man. (laughs) I think we got to take a break after that heavy heaviness. I had no idea, bro. Uh, that's incredible. An incredible story. Cool. And uh, I had no idea. Hopefully, I'm not getting too heavy on you, man. I told you this was no, a con- this concept great, problem. I, f- I, f- I feel like we're going to go like three hours, dude. So, I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's a lot of ground to cover. I'm, you know, I'm game to go as long as you, uh, as long as you can go. You know. Let me. Um, I'm going to play one more song to take us out, and then I'm just going to keep rolling. But let's just take five and kind of recollect. Okay. And I got to figure out how I'm going to come back from that. You have come. With vicious ways And I won't leave you Ah, but I won't stay It serves you right I'm fucked up to who If love's a poison cup Pretty baby, I wanna share it with you I was hoping that you wouldn't dare
calm with vicious ways and I won't leave you oh, but I won't stay it serves you right I'm fucked up to who it loves a poison cup but maybe we drank it There can be no great band without a great drummer. It's a physical fact of the universe. There are no great bands who don't have great drummers. It's just that simple. It's pretty heartbreaking when a drummer quits the band. So you've had uh, two drummers in the amps. Yeah, Beto Rincon was was a, you know he started off with me on on Spectre in the Cab. He's a he was a, a good friend of mine, and we worked in the restaurant biz together. And then he went and pursued some other. Uh, he had some other musical pursuits with some other bands in town. And so we had to, uh, we had to replace him. And then, th- and then it was Justin Swite, who's an old friend from, you know, friends that I had when, or friends that I still have that I met when I moved to Austin in 95, 95 to 2000 was a real special time with uh, a lot of these guys that I knew the bunch, you know, it's a lot of music lovers out here in this city, and and Justin and I rolled with this group of friends. He played in some of the bands with this, with these group of friends that I had. So I always had, I've always known of him as a great drummer. So you put together Haunted Amps with Beto. You guys practice. You get all this momentum cooking up, and you're ready to rock and roll. And then he quits the band. What was that like? I I don't know. And, and I could be wrong, and, and maybe Seth is a better person to ask. I don't know if we rehearsed Saboteur songs with, with, with Beto. We may have, uh, but if so, it was shortly thereafter those songs were starting to get um, fleshed out that he, that, that he quit the band. My guest today is Cesar Aguilar. He is the front man for the Austin, Texas band Haunted Amps. And uh, he isn't, they have a Twitter handle, which is uh, at haunted underscore amps. Um, it's been a few years since it was active, you know, because the band broke up. But there's some hilarious tweets on here. There's a great tweet chain. Uh, it goes, a quote from Jack Rabbit. The only bands who have to worry about the internet cutting into their sales are the people who are making lousy albums. Even without the better analog sound and fine art of the vinyl era, the main event, 30 to 60 minutes 
of an artist's full musical expression, sequenced carefully as on total body of work, is not the concept that is dying. What's dying is the idea of only the crappiest crap made with the crappiest of intentions, with the crappiest production, to entice the most airtime on the crappiest of giant chains of radio stations, bought and paid for by crappy labels and dictated by some crappy, contemptuous, lowest common denominator projecting programming executive from his crappy polling printout in some crappy office somewhere to ensure we all swallow the same crap all over the country at the same crappy time and then placing that one slice of crap on a longer disc with a bunch of even crappier crap that is the concept that is dying that i actually (laughs) i read that now i don't remember who jack rabbit was or or but i remember reading that and i was like yeah that's what that's why we wrote this record that's why i'm trying to make a name for us in Austin, Texas. That's why you get a guy that doesn't know, you know, from a technical standpoint, doesn't hold the candle to all these, you know, um, these uh, hired guns out here in this city and uh, tries to do something different. You know, when I read that, it's like, this is what I felt like I was up against. It really resonated with me, and uh, there's a tweet before that, kind of in this time, where amps are doing a bunch of promo, and it says uh, major labels plus corporate radio plus a monopoly on all major venues equals shit music. Suck it, Clear Channel. Haunted amps are taking back the airwaves. I mean, bravo, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, man. I mean, that's kind of what, you know... As you can tell, I was getting really jaded really quick, you know, and, 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 and you know, I was, a, I was a different person then, you know, I mean, that was, remember, like, we haven't been Haunted Amps for, you know, quite a long time. You know, the record was re- written a decade ago and uh, didn't go out, the, didn't go the way that I hoped, um, you know, and it's, and, and it's, and it's not ironic, you know what I mean? Like the name of the record is Saboteur Lost at Sea. And s- some of the thinking there was, um, you know, confronting self-sabotage and, you know, being vulnerable, putting yourself out there and uh, in an effort to not self-sabotage anymore, still ended up self-sabotaging. <laughs> because, you know, um, after losing a second drummer, you know what I mean? I, I, I took it personal. I took it personal and, and it was emotionally draining for me and, and taxing. And, and then we had a third drummer that kind of saved the day because we had some live shows lined up and he played with us and he's a good friend of mine and still is. And he's actually out in Portland, not in Portland, but in Oregon. We, we got to save the amps and, and play um, some great shows. And then he, you know, he had had enough as well. What I know now is that resilience is a, is, it's a real thing. You know what I mean? And I could have had a thicker skin and I could have been more resilient, but um, I, I interpreted the situation as the cards are stacked against me and it must be something, there must be something wrong with me this music must not be resonating with these guys enough 
that, you know, they definitely see that the grass is greener somewhere else. And it, you know, and, and that could have, that could have not been true at all. You know what I mean? But that's how I, how I perceived it because I had some lofty goals and some, and that lofty goal was to, um, be able to produce art consistently with, with a band. There's nothing worse than when you get a great drummer and you get a ton of momentum and then the drummer leaves. It is the, I mean, it is the hardest position in the band. You can't have a great band without a great drummer. You can get by with an okay bass player as long as everybody else is, or maybe an okay guitar player or, you know, a halfway decent steel player or something like that. But, uh, there's just nothing worse than that and, uh, to have to face that over and over again. It's the bane of almost every band. You know, great drummers are not easy to find. And when you finally get one who wants to be there, who's a part of the collaborative effort, you know, it's not like you're a James Brown and you're handing out charts. And, you know, the minute somebody misses a hi hat beat, they get fined $20. This is like a, it's a collective expression mm-hmm. coming together behind a main uh, songwriter and his vision. But, uh, Justin Swite made it onto the record. He's the one that you hear on all these incredible tracks. And uh, we're halfway through the record at this point in the podcast, the most epic podcast ever recorded. And uh, we're going to listen to a little more Haunted Amps. Here we go. I was taken aback by your lack of concern. Solitude shore in the light. 
There's a great uh, old blog. It's uh, the Indie Texas blog spot. And uh, I was digging it up, doing some research for this. And I'm going to read it because I think it's fascinating and uh, awesome. And it goes, according to my iTunes account, I've owned Saboteur Lost at Sea, the debut album by Austin's Haunted Amps, for about a year and a half. The record mysteriously materialized one night via some strange Austin osmosis effect. During those first tentative listens, I knew that there was something special about the record, which is small part Pink Floyd, large part Nick Cave, and all parts sad, crumbling distortion. Man, beautiful choice of words there. Still, I was unable to fully fall under its spell and often dismissed the record, pledging to give it a full listen at some ambiguous later date. This was exactly my experience. I got those board mixes, I heard it, and I thought, oh, that's pretty good. But it didn't sink in, you know? It, it, it took a while, and then it hit me one day. Like, my God, you know, when you really look at the totality of this record, it's, it's fucking incredible. The blog goes on. Over time, iTunes Shuffle would resurrect the haunted amps. I'm so tired, jumping out like an anxious child, hurricane, highlighting a miserable evening. Today, the track Pink Clouds struck me squarely between the eyes, proclaiming, there's just no excuse. You are the solution. I refuse to remain at fault. Finally, I could see clearly. Saboteur Lost at Sea is an absolute classic record. It's got huge The National-esque riffs that sound like mountains falling apart, a dense, disquieting atmosphere, suitable lyrics, and a distinctive vocalist. That's the best way to describe these vocals. They're very distinctive. They're raw. They're passionate. They're in your face. You can feel them. They're just omnipresent. And the blog continues. They have this to say for themselves. We wrote an album that occurs on or near the ocean, sometimes in a vessel, about love, death, forlorn relations, peyote hallucinations, and other minor themes. Follow the buoy. Naturally, it seems that the Haunted Amps haven't performed a show since 2011. They have a whopping 53 followers on Facebook and Twitter combined, and their last tweet from April, April 2013 reads, went through previous tweets, was going to document our incremental rise or abysmal plummet into obscurity. Guess it was obscurity. So it goes. It's never a mark of great art, how much it's consumed or how popular it is. You know, the art speaks for itself and it's either good or it isn't. And sometimes the best art is the least popular, the least well-known. So that's an old indie Texas blog spot that, uh, yeah. to me, very well-written. Uh, Antonio Rodriguez, I believe, was yeah. the author of Yeah, I remember him uh, reaching out to me uh, on social media, probably Facebook, and making me aware that he had written that. And and I remember uh, being blown away uh, by and humbled. You know what I mean by by that by that reception. And and in fact, that where he talks about that that relationship, right, of kind of being dismissive. You know, I'm okay with that. Meaning that if there was enough there to hook you to pique your curiosity and come back to it and then have it hit you where you you got the depth of what I felt I was trying to communicate and, and that and that's a win for me. And uh, I think that that is, you know, that's, you know, kind of even my relationship with the record, you know what I mean? Where I felt like um, I put together with this group of men, a, a really great record, you know, and I had a lot of 
uh, hesitancy saying, Hey man, I, I wrote a great record. You know, it's just not, you know what I mean? I, I just, um, for fear of, of coming off as that cliche, right. That stereotypical egotistical, uh, delusions of grandeur kind of, uh, musician, you know, I, 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 I didn't want to, you know, be a shameless self-promoter, but I, I did feel that we had captured something really special and, um, you know, and, and I still feel that way. And now like, I don't give a fuck, meaning that like, I don't care that like, I know we wrote a fucking good record. Like I know we wrote a fucking good record and I don't care. You know what I mean? Like if people don't think that or don't hear that, that's fine. But I, but I hope that for those that love music and will sit with the record and, you know, hearing you play the board mixes back, you know, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's humbling, man, because it's really raw. You know what I mean? It doesn't have any of the finishing touches, you know, that we, that we put on the final record and I could criticize myself or go into a lot of like mental self chatter and be like, ah, oh, I really don't. Yeah, it's hard for me to listen to that. But I, at this point, man, I'm like, you know, it is what it is, you know, and and and, and that's who I am. And, and and that's what got recorded. You know, of course, you do some little bit of sprucing up, add a little reverb here, a little reverb there and, 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 and uh, you know, kind of give it more of a more depth. But, you know, that that's that's what was recorded. So that's what it is, you know. And out there, if anybody listened to this, uh, there is, uh, I believe it's on Reverb Nation, there's, you know, places you can still find the CD that was uh, published or printed. It's on, uh, on, ba- it. on Bandcamp, too. I think I've gotten one sale in 10 years. <laughs> I don't even know how to get the money. <laughs> and this is, you know, um, what I'm playing on the podcast are, are the very first recordings that came from justin the the amazing the great justin douglas's uh, board mixes that were done kind of really fresh right out of the gate before you guys went in to retrack you know a few vocals a few guitar parts and um you know sonically the record changed so much the finished product that's out there that you're going to hear on Bandcamp or on the cd that is the official finished record but what you're hearing on this podcast are the raw emotion of the board mixes for all you i know there's more than a few haunted amp fanatics out there like myself so you know the 50 of us that are listening to this podcast i think uh, you know there's only a couple people that have these board mixes and uh, i'm one of them so well that, that that's cool man and, and i think you're you're accurate there's a good solid 50 50 diehards you know <laughs> you know What's interesting is uh, this song that you played, um, like it's like a, there's a demarcating line or a demarcation rather. And the first half of the album is comprised of, you know, I'm so tired, Saboteur Lost at Sea, the title track, Hurricane and Vicious Waves. And um, I, you know, me knowing what the album you know, what I was conceiving was that I'm so tired is deliberately separated from the, what I consider the first three tracks, which is Saboteur, Hurricane, and Vicious Waves. And and I don't want to go into the whole long-winded story about it, but basically I felt like I'm so tired existed independently of this album and was something that was meant to set up the theme 
of being at the point of mental, physical, and spiritual exhaustion. In life, I had been through the the meat grinder. I was trying to like put my life back together, and I was tired. I was tired of uh, kind of feeling like driftwood. You know that the line in that out in that song, where I think this is this is an interesting story. Maybe you you think so, or maybe you don't. But I want to share it with you. Is where we talk where I talk about. If I go, if I expire, I've seen everything that I need to see in the fire. You know, around five years before I wrote this record, I, you know, I had uh, someone that I was seeing that was uh, somehow she had gotten involved with the Native American church. She was going to these ceremonies where they were doing peyote, like literally people that under the religious protection of, you know, our constitution were like Native American church people and and they could have their type of ceremonies. So basically the reason I'm sharing this story is that I got to participate in two of these ceremonies. um, And uh, part of the ceremony is you eat peyote, you know, but anyway, man, it's, you know, not, not to divulge too much, but some point a basket of peyote buttons came around and, and I swallowed a few and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm just an old, like, you know, drinker, you know, psychedelics kind of guy at the time. And I'm like, yeah, man, I've done mushrooms, blah, 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 blah. I'll, I'll do this. Didn't know what I was getting myself into. And then, you know, uh, the way the ceremony goes, you know, you're like sitting in this teepee and there's this uh, very sacred drum that's being beat. The buttons are getting passed around. Tobacco is getting smoked. And it's funny, man, because at some point I got super thirsty and they started passing around what I thought was something to like quench your thirst. Well, it turns out that it was freaking peyote tea. And so I took a big old gulp of this peyote tea and, uh, you know, it didn't take long before I was like transported to another, another planet. (laughs) And, uh, anyway, um, what ended up happening at, you know, this is a whole, by the way, this is like a whole 12 hour ordeal where like you start in at sunset and then you get out of the teepee at sunrise and there's a lot of prayer. There's a lot of tobacco being smoked. It's, it's, it's a very, uh, I think it was a very formative experience for me, to be honest. The, the tweet about the peyote hallucinations. I mean, I mean, I was being serious, you know what I mean? Like, because what ended up happening is that at sunrise hit, I remember there was this Japanese woman and she was married to a Navajo and, you know, they're speaking in their native tongue. She's like praying in Japanese and he's like, you know, speaking out loud in, in, in his native tongue. And, and I mean, it just all culminated, man. And, you know, there's this fire that's always burned. There's like a sacred fire that's being burned in the middle of the, uh, of the, in the middle of the teepee. And anyway, um, basically I saw two images that were going to be very, uh, foretelling, I think is the word. But one of them was like, I was looking at this fire because that's what you do. Uh, well, at least that's what I did during the whole ceremony. It's just like I was transfixed by this fire and staring at it all night. And then out of this fire come around sunrise, I started seeing all these skulls just kind of rising out of the flames. And then, uh, and it, and it, and it shook me, man. I, you know, I shudder to think about it. 
because I was like, oh man, what's this about? Because it had a very ominous feeling to it. And then after that, I literally saw uh, uh, an eagle or a phoenix, if you want. I know it's cheesy as it may sound, but I saw like an eagle in full force, like radiating, made of fire, you know, just like radiating. And I mean, it was just so bright and so brilliant. And just was like, it was just this amazing thing that was happening in my life. And, uh, and it was, and it just was a symbol of strength and the symbol of force. And that was a, that was a <laughs> crazy experience for me, man, because basically that's what I was referring to. And I'm so tired is that having seen that particular vision, you know, down the road, you know, as I'm trying to repair my life and, and put the pieces all back together, it's like that, you know, cliche as it sounds, it's like, you know, I had to get, I had to burn my life down to like recreate myself. And, uh, that image has been with me ever since, you know, that's why that particular song leads into the next three. Somehow what I felt with this record is that I was tapping into very universal themes, right. Of, of love, you know, death, that, um, that self-critic, like it's the saboteur lost at sea, right? I am that saboteur. I can be the source of my own failure. And sometimes I feel like I'm out in this middle, in the middle of the ocean. And at that point specifically, you know what I mean? I know I felt that of like, okay, what do you do? Like, what do you do with this life? You know what I mean? It's like, you only get one. My goal, my aspiration is to not fuck it up. And, and, and that's, there's so much recommitting that needs to happen in order to do that. And that self-critic still continues. And, and I'm fighting it today still. But there's so much, like I've learned that, you know, I have to be in love with the process. Like if it's about the art, then I have to stay committed to just producing the art and not be attached to the things that I was attached to back then. And that's taken some time to like, grow and understand and, and you know what I mean? And, and, you know, I've developed patience and have shifted my thinking to be just, just focus on the art and everything else will take care of itself. I believe the origin of sabotage and saboteur is a French origin. And it came from the, the workers back in the day, they would to stop the gears of the machine. That is life. They would throw their shoes into the gears to sabotage, um, it's, but it's so prevailing in a nautical story sense, like the hunt for red October, right? That's there's the, we have a saboteur, uh, people on a ship sabotaging it. So it couldn't sail and it would have to stay in port, mm. you know? And right. also, I mean, there's another old saying, any port in a storm, right? Mm. And you know, when a hurricane of life hits you, you know, you better find a port. And, right. Uh, right, right, right. Well, you know, the, it's so funny, man. I feel like we're, we're kind of firing this up, but if, if you go to one of the saboteur lyrics, right, uh, one thing that I wrote in there was, um, it's the dark passenger that rides aboard. He, he, uh, he cries man overboard. You know, mutiny is, all he, mutiny is all he knows. Disloyalty is all he shows, right? I'm not, I'm not literally talking about in that sense of there being, in keeping with the theme, the nautical theme, which I had no intention originally to write a nautical record, okay? <laughs> it's just what happened. What I was referring to was, even then, was the self-critic, right? Of like, 
The dark passenger is that person in all of us that will tell you that you're not good enough, that you're not going to make it. Why are you doing this? This is pointless. Who the fuck are you trying to be? Who are you trying to impress? Right? Yeah, you've done this before. You know where this goes. You're going you're, you're gonna to walk away from it again. You know what I mean? And it's like, that. that's all of us. At least I believe that's all of us. It's the thing that dies with the ego in that kind of peyote experience, you know? That's it's right. It's almost like a, a, a sacrificial, you know, offering. And uh, it's, but it's an intrinsic part of being human. Everybody has that voice and, uh, you know, you can drink it away to a certain extent, you know, and you can do a lot of pharmaceutical uh, yeah. remedies, but. You know, when you really come back to to center and you, you start thinking, it's very hard. Everybody has that voice, and at the same time, it drives you to be better. It can also ruin you. You know, it's a, a very slippery slope. Bingo, man. That's it. And to your point, like I, you know, I try to drown it out with both drinking and and, and pharmaceuticals and 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 whatever. And what you're going to come to find is that it'll work, and then it won't. And at some point. You know, for me personally, I'm not speaking to anybody else's experience. I had to come to grips with that. And I had to find out, you know, like, what was I prepared to do about it? And, uh, you know what I mean? That continues to to be the journey today. You know, I'm happy to report that I feel like I'm just in a much better place. So many artists are just shattered by the thought or possibility of putting all this energy and emotion into a record and then you know having play play it for people and then they go man this sucks and it's a debilitating fear which leads to creative decision making and intentions changing at the time of songwriting to the point where well i don't want to take that chance that's way that's too far out for me so i'm just gonna stick to a, a nice pop song you know or uh, something that could be on a clear channel station <laughs> I like the way you tied that back in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and that to me is, uh, that's another form of death right there. Meaning that if, if you, if you're asking me to compromise, um, artistic integrity for the sake of, um, you know, commercialism or commercial success, like, nah, I don't want it. I don't want it. I would, I would rather, and not to be like some self-righteous clown, but I, I would rather walk away, man, because it's like, what is, the, what is the intention here? And my regard for music is the intention that like what I've always wanted is if you listen to a Haunted Amps record, which there's only one, uh, or experience a Haunted Amps show, my intention was for it to do what music had done for me. And is to be, you know, transported somewhere else outside of my body and be like, I feel so alive today. We're but a tiny droplet in the, in the big old sea. And uh, yeah, you know, to, to, to be fair, that's what we continue to be, you know. From my perspective, this album apparated out of nowhere like a ghost. It all came together in the perfect, you know, little moment, the summer of 2010. And then it just came and it went just like a hurricane, you know? It left <laughs> it. Thank God you guys tracked this to two inch tape and you can still listen to it to this day because uh, there are many bands where they, they're pretty good and they practice a bunch 
and then they never do an album. They, they have all these songs, they're well rehearsed, they're even playing shows, but they don't go in most usually because of money and actually track to tape and make an effort to capture that moment and then it's gone forever it just waves into the air you know just floating away in the breeze never to be heard again except in the memories of the musicians that created it you know it's it's interesting you know having this conversation i i recall where we were going and and you know i mean not to toot our own horn, but, you know, I, I hope Seth would speak to the same point, but I just felt like the songs that we were creating after Saboteur, um, you know, there was, we, we, we were certainly developing as, as musicians, as songwriters. And, uh, yeah, there was some fun stuff, man, that we were writing, you know, there was some cool, cool things that we were doing. Dude, this album definitely changed my world and my life. And it kind of raised the bar on, you know, what could be uh, accomplished in this type of environment. But it didn't do that on the first listen. You know, I listened to it just like that Indie Texas blog. You know, I listened to it a handful of times and just thought, oh, it's pretty good, you know, but it wasn't epic, you know. But then it, a switch flips, you know, on that however many listens it takes, kind of like coming into a peyote trip, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, that's interesting. I wonder what it is, man. I wonder what, what, what the hook, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, referring to the Texas blog, uh, I guess it was a lyric that, that hooked that writer, Antonio, and, uh, you know, I don't know what it was for you, uh, but, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that something switch that you know flip the light switch so to speak yeah i mean the lyrics are the most powerful part and the music is you know it's hard to tell what's a bigger force you know they're sort of uh, in a boxing match in a yang in a yang you're listening to haunted amps my guest on the podcast cesar aguilar and we're gonna keep it rolling right here on 525 radio with another haunted amps song And it's only 
I think we should just keep it rolling and just listen to the last two songs. What do you think? I mean, it's up to you, man. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just here in your world. <laughs>
great haunted amps. Talking to Cesar Aguilar, the frontman for the Austin, Texas band. Recorded in the summer of 2010 in Austin, Texas, by the great Justin Douglas at Shine Studios. Um, man, yeah, so talk about great lyrics, right? Now ghosts surround my heart and God is an eagle in flames. Um, and also, you know, we, me and Seth had uh, quite a discussion about one of your lyrics in this song, um, because for years, apparently I heard it the wrong way and I'm hoping you can bring some clarity to this debate. Um, existential. And what I heard for years was flesh hole. But uh, Seth corrected me and he seems to think it's threshold. So what is it? I'm down to know. That's hilarious. Uh, so you and Justin Douglas heard flesh hold or hole, and it is threshold, existential threshold. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, uh, re-listening to those songs and, and listening to the board mixes, um, which is, you know, quite, it's quite a surprise for me. Now, as we go through this process, and I realize that the fourth song, Vacantport, it's like an interlude. And the first three songs, um, after I'm So Tired, it's me trying to capture existential despair. And then these last three songs, it's kind of trying to resolve that. And the whole existential threshold was, you know, after these contemplations or whatever you want, meditations, if you will, it's this idea of like, I am walking through this door of, I don't know what life's about. Um, it's a mystery to all of us. I don't have unique questions. We all have very similar ones. And I'm like, I'm right there with you. I'm in the trenches. You know? Well, I believe I believe there's a famous Kierkegaard quote who, you know, the granddaddy of existentialism, um, something, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something to the effect of, uh, if you truly want to be loathsome to God, run with the herd. Well, yeah, it's funny that you bring that up, man, because, um, you know, I, I, I had a, a philosophy, an existential philosophy class, uh, when I was going to UT and, and part of the syllabus was Kierkegaard and some Nietzsche. And, you know, I, I was just an arrogant prick thinking that if I took these classes and, and had these books that I knew what they were talking about and, 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 you know, and I didn't, but I wasn't so arrogant that when I would read these books, I knew there was wisdom there that was just too hard for me to understand at that point because I was just so young. You know what I mean? Even on 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 vacant port, the line um, "life surpasses life." I mean, I, I would be disingenuous if I didn't tell you that. Like, I, I read that somewhere, and I think I read it in a Nietzsche book, and I was just stunned by that because I was like, "Yeah, like I'm," you know, we get to this point in life where we're just like clinging on to. I just don't want to die. I just, you know. Like it, my life is so precious and it's like, and in that clinging on to that life is so precious, we end up not doing anything with it and not enjoying it and not, you know, like understanding that you only, it's not like a video game. 
where you get extra credits and like you die and you can hit start over and you get to play again. It's like you get like you're, you know, you literally get one shot. What you do with your life is so much more important than uh, clinging on to it. So uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Conventionally. And I have to do all these things and all these prescribed ways of living. And that's what I'm set out to do. And uh, you know what I mean? That's just like, to me, it's a, a, not a life well lived. And so I was trying to communicate this idea of like, we're all afraid of death. And in that fear of death, you know, we, we, we don't make the most out of our lives. And I was certainly at that time, super, my relationship with death was precarious at best. I didn't, you know, I always felt like there was imminent doom around the corner and I was just going to one day just collapse and die. Don't ask me why. It just was, you know, that's just where I was. And uh, these songs were a way for me to process that and deal with that. Some some people take it to the other end, you know. They're adrenaline junkies. Uh, they they need to be, they need to face death on a daily basis in order to feel alive. Right. You know? right. The, the the numbers of uh, incredibly intelligent, wickedly smart philosophers that have grappled with this age old existential question, you know, for thousands of years. Just that the age old human question: the brain needs answers. There there aren't any. And uh, what do we do? What do we do? think about it some more (laughs) (laughs) right right and and i think that pretty that sentence right there kind of summarizes uh where i was at at that point it was like you know the incessant obsessive you know trying to sort it all out and i'm just i'm grateful at this point that um for better for worse you know i've given up that that racket i'm not here to sort it out for other people and I'm not going to waste my time trying to sort it out for myself. I'm just going to kind of apply a, like an evidence-based approach and, and, and find out what works for me and what doesn't and engage the things that, that work. Bukowski had a great uh, line about just being born into this, born into hospitals where it's cheaper to die you know, born into this life where you know, you've got to kill or be killed. And it's this, you got to go out, you got to make money. And you know, who, who made it this way? Who invented this insanity? Mm-hmm. Well, well, think about where we're at right now. You know what I mean? In 2020, it's in a pandemic and, uh, you know, in a less than favorable, uh, state of affairs as, as, as a country, as it relates to being in, in, in America. And, you know, you come to find out that, um, this thing that we revere, you know what I mean? In terms of what you're supposed to do. And I'm doing that in air quotes. Um, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're seeing it stood up on its head and, and, and realizing the, the existential toll that it has, because there's something about it, not to make it all evil and wrong, but there is, something sacred about being human that is not being accounted for and trying to fit everybody into this mold is not going to work because we're not all the same. We're not all meant to be like these industrious, you know, uh, well-to-do or whatever, whatever that looks like, man. It's just like it, it, that to, to think that 
that model would work for everybody is is, is just having a, a major toll on people is what I believe. Uh, I mean, all around the world, as we're doing this in November of 2020, uh, you know, I mean, no service has or no sector has been hit harder than the hospitality service, bars, uh, restaurants, casinos. I mean, Vegas is, yeah. you know, a lot of people are, are uh, have been forced into kind of, uh, you know, if they're lucky enough to still, you know, be alive and kicking, um, forced into this question that maybe they didn't want to be in. And, you know, I think it's interesting as we progress further and further into AI and into transhumanism and you know, the, the desire of a certain sect of humans to make the rest of humanity into some type of hybrid machine where, you know, free thought, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, you know, but the true human experience of uh, just being alone with your mind, it's not going to be possible because there's going to be a neural net and, uh, you know, you're going to have IOT wearables and they're going to know what you thought before you even thought it. I mean, it's, some serious PK Dick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man. You, yeah, you're into sci-fi as I as well as I am. You know, it's interesting that you use the word machine because, dude, that you know, um, not 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 just to pivot back into the album, but th- you know that that that's why I wrote what I wrote on the last song. Is right. It's like you know, what kind of life is this? The life of an anxious machine, and I meant that from like existential angst, right? Like. You ask us to not look at what is going on with us internally and just to continue to be a cog in the machine or a spoke in the wheel, whatever whatever analogy you want. You know what I mean? And it's like you're not acknowledging the human underneath all that and the experiences that they've had, the circumstances that they've had. And it's like that's why I feel so passionate about this album because this album was for – for the downtrodden, you know what I mean? For my, you know, me being cut from that cloth of like, man, I hear you. Unlike a lot of albums, you know, you didn't have uh, 10 albums before it to sort of hone your craft and practice. This just kind of, I mean, yeah, you've been in a couple of bands, but you know, most, most artists, they have sort of a peak, a zenith. Um, uh, you know, some people bloom early, some people bloom, bloom late. You know, a lot of artists start out great and then they sort of, enter into this banal mediocre period where they're just cat, you know collecting checks and you know maybe they have a renaissance at the end of their career but that's why you know this record is so different it just came out of nowhere like a bolt of lightning and then it went away as fast as it came uh in terms of there was never a follow-up you guys you know disbanded sometime in the next year and um drummers you know it's always the drummers <laughs> yeah yeah i've worked through that resentment uh you know i definitely had quite a bit of it, but to kind of keep it on the lighter side, you know, Seth will, will share with you. Um, like we, man, it was nothing short of comical when we were like picking people up off of Craigslist and this one guy came in, man. And it was just like, there was no way this guy was gonna, gonna work. He was in some cover band, uh, called more cowbell based off of that Saturday night live skit. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, Oh, go on. I'm intrigued. Oh God, dude, this is a, such a funny story. And, and, and he's, he's in there and rather than play our songs, he wants to like, he wants to jam. Right. And, and he's definitely more of the kind of funk, you know, variety of drummer, you know what I mean? Certainly not anybody that needed to be doing anything related to haunted amps. And, uh, 
at some point we're like jamming and I'm just like kind of indulging the situation. And at some point the dude goes into a rim shot and then he like points with his drumstick points at Seth, like bass solo. And God, dude, it was uh, at that point I was like, uh, you know, I'm fucking done, man. I'm done. And, and, and I, and I think that, uh, Seth, uh, I think that he attempted to to play a bass solo, and uh, it sounds like Seth. I mean, who wouldn't? You've been challenged by the drummer I, to a bass solo, dude. It was so, dude. It's so gnarly, man. It was so gnarly and just so like, this is exactly what what I don't want to be doing, you know. And that's you know that's you got two choices. You can either you know perform or you can. Nah, I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, but it's hard to know in the moment. Hindsight's always easier. I'm, I'm really curious. Like, how many auditions did you guys do? I mean, how many of these stories are there? Oh, uh, we did a few. We did a few. Um, there was another guy that came in, and he, I felt like I got catfished by this guy because you know we hopped on the phone and we started talking about jazz music, and he started talking about Coltrane, and I was like, cool, man. I feel like. If, if if it's a jazzer that has this kind of avant-garde, um, you know, art rock kind of vibe to him, then th- this would be great. You know what I mean? And and he showed up, and the dude was atrocious. He was atrocious. Like we were like, okay, so here's you know, we would play a song, and I would wait for him to kick into the rhythm, and I'd be like, you know, at one point I think I looked at him and I was like, um, I mean. Do you, do you hear it, man? Do you, you know? Do you, do you you know? Can, can you imagine what what the beat is here? And uh, he was like, Yeah, 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 man. I'm just warming up. I'm just warming up. And you know, you know, not that I wasn't an amateur, but I mean, I mean, you could sense that he did drumming as, or he was a drummer as a hobby, not someone that had, you know, at least from my perspective, you know, had played to a song. And I was like, God, you know, you know what I'm saying? These are the things that after a while, you know, you're like, you know, what, what is going on here? You know? And then I had a friend that I worked with in the restaurants. He came through and it was a very similar, very similar situation where he said, yeah, I I can do it. And then he got to playing and uh, it's like, no, he clearly couldn't. And I mean, to be fair, because I've been on both sides of this audition nightmare, um, but you know, the, the auditioning for Haunted Amps—that's not your average drumming gig. I mean, you you are you need to be a very special caliber of drummer. I mean, if you're in a country band and you're playing Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, you know, really just polka, something easy, where the drums aren't really the center fixture. You know, they're certainly not, uh, you know. Uh, interweaving with other instruments you know they're just kind of holding the beat down in a very basic manner you know but to audition for the amps man that's like you better uh have something that you're bringing to the table more than just a kick and a snare you know it's you got to be uh a different a different level of drummer you know but uh, i mean i've been i've been the guy on the audition and sucking and i've you know been on the other side of it going god these guys suck you know we're never gonna find anybody um i i auditioned in portland in the the 90s this it was like a primus kind of band that i was really in love with i thought oh my god that was the best audition i've ever had and man we gelled so well together and i'm finally gonna be in a band where you know i can kind of let it go a little bit and uh you know i never even 
never even got a call back. <laughs> well, you know, man, uh, you know, here's the thing. I, 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 uh, well, I appreciate you saying what you're saying. I think, I don't know. I mean, maybe people, um, you know, it could be the way I carried myself. You know, at that point, I was really serious about the music. And, you know, I think I, you know, for somebody that was novice, did have a um, very clear idea or somewhat clear idea of what I wanted the, the band to sound like and, and, and how it needed to gel. And, and, and then maybe, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you, you had to have liked the kind of music that we liked and you had to have got the concept of the kind of music that we were writing um, for it, for it to work. Otherwise, you know, you would think that, Oh man, this is just some noisy band, you know? Is Kurt Vile the last hope for musical integrity? Like when Kurt Vile does a Pepsi commercial, that's, it's going to be over for me. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? You know, that's, uh, I was going to ask you, did he do a Pepsi commercial or, but I, I get what you're saying, you know, meaning, not, me, not yet. meaning that if he does, then, you know, here's the thing, man. It's, um, I, I recently read, not recently, maybe a year ago or two, whenever Jeff Tweedy from Wilco wrote an autobiography, um, I read it and, um, I remember him in the book, he talked about, you know, refusing to do commercials. And then his dad, who was like a salt of the earth guy, I think he might've worked in the railroad or something was like, you know, called him out for his arrogance. And he's like, who do you think you are? You know what I mean? It's like, people are willing to give you money to sell their product. And you know where you came from and you know what we've gone through. And, and, and you think you have this, this luxury to just, you know, refuse money. And, uh, you know, as I heard that story, um, and I think he ended up, you know, selling several songs or licensing several songs to Volkswagen. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yes. Very famously. Yeah. And, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, so what I'm getting at is like, dude, it, people are going to do what they're going to do. You know what I mean? And, have you the, seen the Post Malone Doritos commercial? Yep, I'm sure I have. Post Limon. Yep, yep. I mean, to me, that's like as bad as it gets right there. I mean, sorry. That's my opinion. But. Somebody online, I read this, they're like, if you're an artist and, and, and you know that you're an artist, you need to, if you're truly dedicated to the art, you need to figure out a way to do your art while you are, uh, while you are gainfully employed. Otherwise, you're going to starve to death. And I hate to be pragmatic, you know, in my older age, but it, you know, there's a discipline there, right? It's like, meaning that if I'm not applying my extra hours that I have to making art, then it's on nobody else but me because I have the time. It's really, do I have the discipline? And, you know, that's what I challenge, with, challenge myself with now is do I truly have the discipline to be dedicated to the art to the point where while I'm working, I put enough, as much time as I have to the art as I can. And if it's meant to be, meaning if at some point, um, the art that I produce, you know, happens to be the way that I, that I sustain my life, then, then great. If it doesn't, 
well, then if I truly cared about the art, then I would just continue to make the art. There should be a movie where people rob banks to uh, finance an art career. Maybe that could be a, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here in my high and mighty moral smug attitude. Uh, I mean, I don't, there's no Pepsi deals staring me in the face. You know, they're easy to turn down when you don't have them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. He comes along and says, Hey, we got $50 million for you. Maybe the choice gets a little harder, you know, and like Willie Nelson in the nineties, he got in trouble with the IRS. The IRS took like 22 million. There's a very famous Bill Hicks bit about Willie Nelson. How he's the, at the time it was 92 or whatever. He's the one guy that gets a pass for doing commercials. Cause the IRS just, you know, railroaded him so hard. And so now he's poor Willie. He, he, Hicks was trying to start a save Willie campaign where, you know, I can't bear to see him on these Taco Bell commercials. You know, and, and that's why I bring up the, the, the Tweety thing that I read. It's like, you know what? It's like, you know, he, he had a reckoning with himself. He got insight from, you know, the person that brought him onto this planet, his, his, his dad in that case. And he made a choice. And the choice was informed by, call it, call it wisdom, insight that his dad provided. And, and that was his choice. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's his choice. Would I make the same choice? I, I don't know. I'm like, to your point, I'm not in that position. So it's not even something that I need to worry about. But it lent me a different perspective. The part of the arrogance piece, right? I was like, it lent me a different perspective to like, okay, you know, you don't know, you don't know shit. And you don't know what you would do in that situation. And you're not even in that situation. So what does it matter? I think it's fair to say, like, nobody sheds a tear when Britney Spears does a Pepsi commercial. It's almost expected. It's the real heartbreakers are the guys that seem to have this integrity, this artistic integrity, who get into a position for whatever reason and to a point in time where now they've, you know, they've got to, they've got to do the deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you got to pay for that extravagant lifestyle. You know, you want to have that personal chef and those, you know, 50,000 square foot house doesn't pay for itself. And, I mean, no, <laughs> no band is the bigger embodiment of this whole conversation than Metallica, right? When Metallica started that, love them or hate them, you know, you can not be a fan or be a fan either way. They were just these beer drinking kids that, you know, were just so committed and driven to playing the metal and that's all they cared about. And I mean, you see them today as old men, they've got life coaches and massage therapists and everybody's had like knee surgery. <laughs> and I mean, uh, you know, the entourage is just mind blowing around those guys, you know. Well, you know, it's funny. I feel like there is going to be some kind of Metallica renaissance because this is hilarious, man. In the last month, um, I had a conversation with my better half about how one is one of the greatest Metallica songs or one of the greatest songs ever written. Agreed. And then, you know, uh, my brother-in-law, he posts something on social media about one being one of the greatest songs ever written. A friend of mine did it recently as well. You're bringing up Metallica on this conversation. It's like when I hear these things, man, uh, it's like the universe. I feel I try to stay tuned into stuff like that. I'm like, Hmm, is there something either great or not so great that's going to happen with Metallica soon? It kind of feels like it, it's it's in the air, so to speak. There's, there's, I mean, go back and watch live Cliff Burton Metallica. I mean, Cliff Burton was a fucking god. That guy was amazing. I mean, you cannot go watch old live Cliff Burton Metallica footage without just being in amazement at 
it just being an amazement at how awesome uh, yeah. Cliff Burton was on stage. I mean, the guy was a thunder god. Thunder god, that's awesome. Yeah, dude, agreed, hundred percent, man. Like all those those uh, you know early records are. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's crazy to think that um, you know they were being written in the eighties. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a it's a very sp- specific type of metal that um that i loved growing up <laughs> if you're a boomer like us then yeah, you, dude. You, had, you had metallica on tape and uh this is you know there's three televisions stations and uh you know the radio was everything well dude yeah uh i mean i think uh, i don't know we should uh if, if we if i go more than three hours i have to stop and download no. and save it because no no uh, let's 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 land this plane man it's been a it's been a pleasure um Thanks, you know, thanks, man. And, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, you got a good interview out of it. My guest today, Cesar Aguilar, frontman for the legendary Austin band Haunted Amps. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Any plugs you want to give out? Any uh, shots, shout outs, any kind of uh, last closing words? No, I mean, I, you know, I, I um, again, just, you know, I want to thank you for, you know, uh, being a fan of the record and, 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 and having me on and doing this. And, uh, you know, um, the only thing I'll say is that I, I've always have felt, it's kind of funny the way the record ended, but I've always felt like it was going to always be a, to be continued. And, uh, you know, that's where I'm at now, where I'm at now is, you know, how do I, um, continue to do what I love and that's make music, make music. Imagine if you guys never went in and recorded to two-inch tape, you know, like we wouldn't even be here, you know, nobody would be able to hear it. It would be uh, a tragic waste. So many bands end up like that and uh, it's heartbreaking, but the Haunted Amps is not one of them. Thank God. So yeah, uh, check it out. Saboteur Lost at Sea, Haunted Amps. It will change your life if you let it. Cesar, it's been my pleasure to have you on the 525 Records podcast today. Thank you very much. Until next time, take care, buddy. All right, brother. Thank you.
Now 